the Cinemaker, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 10, Aaron Brockovich from 2000. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I am Tobin Addington. I'd never seen this movie before, and it only took me eight minutes before I paused the movie and be like, she won Best Actress for this, right? And I was like, yeah, okay, good. Because <laughs> this is, I don't know if this is an exaggeration, I don't know if it's just because it's the recency effect, but like, as far as I'm concerned, like, this might be one of the best acting performances of all time, maybe? Or is that crazy? No, not crazy. I think she, I think Julia Roberts is astoundingly good in this movie. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I don't, I don't think that's like a crazy statement you know there's evidence to back that up for sure i've never been like a big julia roberts fan either like i'm a big fan of this movie i've seen this a bunch of times uh, it was another one where i sat down and as soon as it was on it just sucked me right back in and i was like okay i, I have no problem rewatching this for like a fourth or fifth time whatever sixth time whatever it is and i didn't really i mean i pretty woman i saw when i was younger but since i'm not a I'm not like a my best friend's wedding or any of that. I've never seen her other work. But then after this, I was like, okay, I'm going to sort of try and keep my eye on Julia Roberts again because she just like blows you away in here. Yeah, with the right material and the right director, she's very, very good. I don't know that she's ever been as good as she is here or will ever be as good again. But if you do watch something like My Best Friend's Wedding, which is another movie of hers that I really, really like, she plays with and against but mostly with her persona in, in really interesting ways. And yeah, I think that with the, as I say, with the right script and the right director, as she's got here, she really pulls something off, totally. Well, going back to King of the Hill, when we talked about that, I said that I'd never liked Adrian Brody more than I liked him in that mm-hmm. movie. And then when we did Out of Sight, I've never liked Jennifer Lopez more than I liked her in that <laughs> movie. And here, like Julia Roberts and Aaron Eckhart are both like, I've never liked either of them more. This is a trend. <laughs> I know, because, I mean, he says it in every interview. We've talked about it on here, but like Steven Soderbergh just likes actors. He likes working with actors. He listens to them. He talks to them. Like, he, he's on their wavelength. And I, I just, I should stop. Doubting him or whatever, because like when when Aaron Eckhart showed up as her rowdy next door neighbor, who's based on her real life former boyfriend, who's a Mexican guy named George or Jorge, I was like, oh god, like like I don't dislike him, but I just I, I I sort of was worried, and I was like, oh, he's actually incredible in this. Like he wins me over, he wins the audience over quicker than he wins over Julie Roberts, I think, because he's like he's selling himself to her, and I was just like, oh, like I'm I'm on board, like he's great. Yeah, so well cast throughout this entire thing. I love, I like Eckhart too here. I didn't know of him when I first saw this, but I know of him now, and I think this is one of his better performances. He just has the, a good face for that handlebar mustache too. He just wears <laughs> yeah. that really well. But his character is is almost like the same sort of lesson you learn about Aaron. Is like you shouldn't really judge a book by its cover necessarily. Like he looks like this crazy rowdy biker dude, but he becomes like this really nurturing and caring and sensitive guy who takes care of her children most of the time. You know, so it's really cool how there's even a deeper level just to the next door neighbor boyfriend character. Julia Roberts won Best Actress for this, and I thought, and I was right, that this is the first Soderbergh movie that's an Academy Award-winning movie. He had been nominated for Screenplay for Sex Lies, Out of Sight had been nominated for Best Editing, but here it's nominated for Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay... Out of Sight was also nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. So Sex, Lies, and Videotape was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. Out of Sight was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Film Editing. And then this was a winner for Best Actress in Leading Role, nominated for Best Picture, nominated for Best Supporting Actor, nominated for Best Director, and nominated for Best Original Screenplay. So this is his most decorated film to date. I don't know if it's his best. 
sex lies is great. And I think, you know, as we talked about two weeks ago, Out of Sight is perfect. But like, this movie's great. I find this such a satisfying movie from top to bottom, partly because I write a lot of person against the system movies. And this fits into that, like the, the little guy taking on the big guy. And this this is a great, great example of, of that kind of film. And then that it's able to sort of fulfill everything you want that genre to fulfill. And yet be as entertaining and as specific to its characters and as emotional as that journey is, is a real feat. Like, this is the movie that proves that he can sort of conquer, like, studio, a different kind of genre, right? Like, there's no, I guess there is a crime involved here, but that's not like the Elmore Leonard stuff that you get in Out of Sight. And and this, if he had not made Out of Sight, I think this would, I would be saying this is a perfect movie. <laughs> and, and I don't think that it is in, in, in the way that I thought Out of Sight was. But it is so, so satisfying. I'm the, the same way as, as Mike. If I start this movie, I, I can't turn it off. And I've foisted the script onto class after class after class because I think it's so, so well written and does so many things well that I'm sure we'll get to. Um, but this is, a, I just, I just, this movie makes me feel really, really good. I think one of its main things is that it's got a lot of mainstream appeal going for it and Soderbergh's last few movies have sort of been jumping around a lot they've been cool but they've been mostly like these sort of independent crime films this is a linear narrative you know he's back mm-hmm. to that it's driven by one big star Julia Roberts well Albert Finney's in there but he's sort of like the previous generation I'd say like, right. <laughs> reminding holding up those pillars and he's amazing in this we'll get to him but you know it's it's partially this strange biopic in a way I'm mm-hmm. watching it you know, it's a biopic in, in sort of a way I don't really see too often where you don't get her entire life story, but you definitely come to understand who she is throughout like the giant trial that she's going through in her life at this moment. And and it definitely has all this like small town appeal going for it. So you could play this in middle America, you know, and I think that it, the people there will definitely relate to it. And then you can play this in the big cities and they'll they'll absolutely find things that they could love about this as well. And so it's amazing how he's able to just say, you know, like, I'm, I'm going to shift gears here and try my hand at doing something I haven't done in a while. Let's do a uh, straightforward narrative, no sort of time hopping around. But like, let's just try and do something that everyone can enjoy. You could take your family. Well, I wouldn't take your family. This is, <laughs> this is a hard R, but let's just do something that that is much more straightforward, but is also really, really good. Yeah, it's accessible. It's accessible in a way yes. that some, some of his more esoteric stuff isn't. And yet it's just as good to me as the sort of more esoteric stuff that he that he creates. He said that he was drawn to it because, or he wanted to make the movie because he liked how linear the script was. And this was a script that you made me read. And I don't know why in my head, maybe it was just like, a, I mean, years ago, because I really was not, for no reason, I was just against this movie. Like, I was like, oh, it's like a chick flick. I don't know what I was thinking, but I was just like, this is not a movie for me. And that was, I sh- I up until like, maybe I read the, yeah. But like, up until I read the script, I was like, I had that mindset. I was like, oh, this is a great script. But like, I still felt like because I had read the script, I didn't need to mm-hmm. see the movie. And so it just, it took until today to see the movie, but he liked it because it was so linear. And what's kind of actually funny is that apparently when he was finishing up the limey, someone was telling him about the story or telling him about the script or whatever. And he's like, that sounds terrible. Like, I'm not going to make that. And then he just sat down and read the script. He's like, oh, yeah, like, I'll do this. Like, absolutely. That's the thing. Like, the movie just feels like it never stops unfolding right like mm-hmm. it's just wonderful how from scene to scene it's almost it reminds me I mean a very different movie but I get the same sort of feel sometimes when I watch Chinatown where it's like every scene is sort of revealing mm. a new layer to this mystery or this story and even though he you know cut like an hour 
out of this movie, I heard like the original cut was like around three hours and 15 minutes. Wow. It, yep. it, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like anything's missing and it feels like everything is in here for a reason to sort of propel the narrative, the story, the plot, or something about the character. Uh, everything feels like it's there with some payoff. So the one reason why I think this might not be as perfect of a movie as Out of Sight, because I, I feel like this feels a little bit long. And it's obviously not three hours and 15 minutes. You know, it's an hour shy of that, which is a lot of stuff to be cut out. But I agree that there's nothing really missing. But it felt a little long. I don't know what I would have cut out. But I also feel like it being long kind of works thematically because like it's it's a tiring mm-hmm. long process that she's working on this case for 18 months and it's supposed to like it can't just like breeze by because even though it flies by for her sort of you cut back to Aaron Eckhart and the kids and, like they're just not seeing her and it's like a really long time for them so I think that that works to its advantage it just felt a little bit long to me somewhere in the middle but I don't know mm-hmm. I, I don't have specific criticism just sort of that's just a vibe that I got. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's fair. Yeah. And I, I can't put my finger on it. I'm, I'm sort of like it too much, maybe, <laughs> to be able to tell exactly what it is. But you're right. There's something in the middle of the movie that goes a little a little bit mushy along the way. That That's totally fair. I think that, back to Mike's point, that one of the things that works so well is that all of the scenes are sort of working for both the character and the story. Like, we're unfolding the mystery of what's going on, and we're learning so much more about her, and she is transforming, you know, oh, oh, and by the way, it's all sort of thematically connected to what's going on. And I think it's, anytime you can have scenes do all those things at once, that's when, you know, usually a a movie sort of really humming on on all cylinders. And that's certainly the case in this. I feel like I'm getting so much new information, sometimes that I didn't even know that I was looking for, and and new things are being unfolded in almost every scene. And that really helps sort of move the story along. Yeah, I also felt the length maybe a little bit, but I agree that I feel like it could be a thematic link as well. I like that, but I also feel like it might be part of a consequence to the sort of way this is shot. I don't know, this sort of had like that somewhat docu-style feel that I got from Out of Sight in a way that it's shot. Like, I know there's a lot of natural lighting going on. I know he's been experimenting with that over the last couple films. And I think maybe that, just sort of capturing the everyday sort of feel to it, as well as trying to say like this took place over a period of time uh, could sort of constitute like that feeling of this is sort of dragging a little bit but I, I I don't know maybe it's the case maybe it's just learning about it again and getting wrapped up in it but like I said I've seen this movie a few times but this time like it hit me more emotionally mm-hmm. uh, maybe it's like because of the times we're living in and it had mm-hmm. a lot of like healthcare issues and things but when I saw the girl you know sitting on the couch with between yeah. her parents this yeah. time like I yeah. just couldn't help it like I just lost it that time and when she starts naming off all the numbers of all the clients in the office to the girl at the other firm like I just couldn't keep it together so it's interesting to me how wrapped up in it again I got this time and and previous viewings, I didn't really have that sort of emotional reaction, but this time it it hit me from a different angle, one that I didn't experience before. That's so true. I had not connected it to the times we're living in now, but you're you're totally right. There's because I had that same feeling. I was sort of uh, this is one of the first times I've watched it all the way through since having kids, and I I thought that maybe that was it that it was sort of that changed my perspective as it does on, on on some of these movies. But no, but I think maybe you're right. I think maybe the idea of what these the company's able to get away with environmentally and what's that doing what that's doing to the town and what they're able to then like what they're what they're going through and have gone through and will continue to go through health wise and 
and how they're going to pay for that, what's going to do their family, like all that stuff feels, you know, as relevant now as certainly as it did in 2000 when the movie came out. Or in 1993 when it happens. This happens. This takes place in 1993, right, right. I think, right? Because like it also feels timeless, right. though. Like not only like thematically, but there's nothing that they do, or like there's like no technology really. Like it's all just feels like it could happen anytime. Yeah, I think maybe just her flip phone, and even that, like I could understand being as poor as she is depicted, not you know having to get like a secondhand burner or something like that to carry around or something. So yeah, that struck me too. It was kind of like, when is this taking place again? Oh yeah, it just it doesn't it feels very timeless and it feels so much more about the character rather than the technology that they're using in any way and i think that that makes a real difference too in terms of us pegging down the time because you could imagine a version of this kind of story where somebody's on well these days you you'd be on their ipads and their computer you know computers or whatever and the fact that this is so much more about the people and that that's part of her skills that she has a mind and a and a face and a a way of dealing with people as opposed to dealing with them as numbers or or as files that that adds to its sense of timelessness because it, it, the movie's not sort of as interested in in technology, which would certainly peg it for its time. I think it also works, and I think a reason that I really like it is because it feels like a journalism movie, kind of. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know why I keep... Like, I'm thinking about it in my head. Like, it, it reminds me of Spotlight, where they're just going around and talking to people. Like, she's just going around and talking to people, and she's doing it for, like, a legal reason as opposed to a reporting reason. But it just... It's this interpersonal. It's this face-to-face. And that's also the whole thing, like, when they bring in that other law firm to help out, and, like, it's no longer the face to Or, like, not the same kind of face-to-face, right? And so it's this type of person and personality and storytelling and just behavior, both in the real life or and also what they what they're depicting that just feels warm and real and good and perfect i didn't think about that before but you're totally right like i almost get like a partial sort of zodiac vibe now that you think about it like i love that movie zodiac and i could just watch you know a five-hour cut of that movie and maybe i could watch like a three-hour cut of this because it's like the investigation process right and like that could be not so good but we have like really good elements we're working with you know we have like this true story we have you know a great actor and this great director and great script you know like all the right elements to pull off something like that that comes across every once in a while like spotlight i don't think it's like a big mystery as to why that's such a great movie like it's just got all the right pieces going for it Uh, so yeah i definitely pick up on that journalistic vibe in my notes i have all the president's men written down which i'd not made that connection before but in that same way of a true story that has this incredible script with these fantastic actors with the perfect director at the perfect time and that is as much about you know the the sort of face-to-face interactions that they have and basically in that case it's just a movie of them talking all the time like it just they either talk or sit at a, at a typewriter and write and yet it's a brilliant i think a brilliant movie and this this has some of that same vibe to it you're totally right to think about it in an investigative journalism sort of context you just mentioned, I want to say this earlier, you just said like it's it's by the perfect director at the perfect time, that the last few movies that we've done have all been great, but none has really been super financially successful. Like, even all the way going back to Sex Lies, like, nothing's really been, like, a hit. Like, Out of Sight was a really successful, a critically acclaimed movie, but it, like, barely broke even, if it broke even. This cost $50 million, but made, like, 250 worldwide. So, like, not only is it people doing stuff well but it's a story it's like a movie that people actually went to go see and then catapulted off this he's gonna go turn around and make his smaller movie traffic but then he's gonna go make oceans 11 you know Mm -hmm. what i mean so this is like i i really wonder 
I think that, you know, if this movie, like the story that it's telling, it's like a really compelling story, like a human interest story, a great biopic. I think that, like, if it's done well, people are going to go see it. But, like, if this movie hadn't made a lot of money, I wonder what would have happened. Because he, he would have made two really good movies in a row, but neither which made money, you know? So I like the fact that it turns, like, a $200 million profit because it's like, oh, this guy can make good movies, but he can also make us a whole lot of money. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was in L.A. in the last year pitching some stuff around, and at one point an executive said to me, because I was talking about Aaron Brockovich in relationship to a project that I was working on. He said, oh, man, it's really sad. Aaron Brockovich could never get made today. I said, that's crazy. Why Why couldn't it get made? And he said, because nobody comes in knowing who she is. And he's saying not, he was not saying that, it, that, that that was a good thing, you know, but, but just that the sort of the movie business has changed enough that they don't think that they can recoup. They don't think they can make $250 million off a movie that – People don't have any relationship to going in if it's not about somebody or that or an event that they know already, which is really sad. Now I think that that's probably not true. I think that like in the next you know next year something like Aaron Brockovich, like Spotlight will come out that people will go to, not because they have a, a sort of pre-existing knowledge of who the person is, but it, it was kind of sad to me because it's, this is as you say this this was a, an incredibly successful movie for for them with the right cast, the right director, and the right script at the right time. It's interesting, though, because this does feel like a very small independent film. I feel like most of that price tag was getting Julia Roberts, perhaps, right? She had like a really high price tag. I feel like she was part of the 20 million club yeah. at one time. Maybe yeah. I think the first time that a woman had made 20 million in a movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, incredible. But that just goes to show like, so really, this movie may have only cost $30 million, you know, and then maybe even more corners were cut. I mean, they had, uh, like, Soderbergh just knows how to really stretch a buck, it feels, at this point, and that they were like, yeah, go ahead, make this small little somewhat biopic, partial journalism movie, hybrid weird thing based on a true story about someone no one's ever heard of. Like, go ahead, like, what's the worst that could happen, you know? The best case scenario unfolded, and so... <laughs> It's like, wow, like that that's going to earn him even more good graces going forward and going on into traffic, which is going to feel sort of like an opus. I feel I've seen that before. And uh, from what I remember, like that is um, not huge, but has sort of like much more of like an epic feel to it. But we'll get there. This is also, I mean, speaking, like, as we sort of transition into traffic, I mean, we're not done talking about this movie by a long stretch, but, like, this is the last movie that he's not the cinematographer on. So from Traffic on out, he's Peter Andrews. He's credited as Peter Andrews. And I found out that, like, it's because of the Writers Guild that he couldn't, like, split up, written and directed by to have, like, cinematography in the middle or something. Some weird specific rule. So he didn't want to credit himself twice. So he's just like, I'll just name some other person. That's sort of a transition that's coming. But here, it looks like a Soderbergh movie. What's interesting also, like, I I never really, until we started doing this, I never really paid attention to the score of a movie as much as I do consistently here. And this score was done by Thomas Newman, who did a lot of Pixar movies. And it sounds like that, sort of, it sounds like a Pixar kind of movie, at least in the beginning and at certain times. But what's also interesting is that he, he never does another Soderbergh movie, but like, it still sounds like his other movies. It sounds like Cliff Martinez has done a bunch of his movies. It sounds like David Holmes, the guy who did Out of Sight and Who Will Come Back for Ocean's Eleven, the Ocean's Trilogy. It sounds in that style, but it's also unique to Thomas Newman. So like, I like that as we're moving from the era, like it's all, like I've never really paid attention to the behind the scenes stuff as much as I am here because Soderbergh is so involved in everything. But as we're moving from him sort of being a little bit hands-off in filming to being hands-on, and then we also have the the score and we also have the editor back from Out of Sight. 
yeah, those two roles in particular are going to be interesting to me transitioning into the next phase of his career as he begins to edit and shoot all his own stuff again. That's It's going to... I'd be curious to see, watching this all in order, what that changes about his style, if anything, if we notice anything that way. And I would be really, I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading some of the interviews from around the time as he begins to describe taking charge of that process. Nobody does it, to my mind, as well as he does, but it's, it's interesting to sort of be at this flexion point. As he begins to hit his height of Hollywood power, how he then takes even more control of, of the aesthetics of his movie in some way. Oh, this is just a, a quick aside, but uh, Mike was just a guest on the Zack Attack podcast that we just did for me and Orson Welles, and Julie Roberts and Aaron Eckhart totally quadruple space in this movie, right, Mike? Oh, that they, yeah. they have sex yeah, off screen, mm-hmm. and like it just, they kiss or whatever, they hug, then it goes to fade to black, and then we just cut to her in her bra being Miss Wichita. And so I was like, oh, they quadruple spaced. So, Tobin, just real quick, in me and Orson Welles, quadruple spacing back in like the 30s was like in these like, I guess, semi-trashy romance uh-huh. novels or whatever, they would quadruple space so like, so you could fill in the blank yourself. Uh-huh. So like, they'd be like, oh, they went off to the bedroom, and then like, they would wake up the next morning or whatever. And like, it quadruple space in between, like, so you could fill in the blanks. And here, I just thought that like, you know, a term that we yeah. just coins, I guess, maybe like two weeks ago, just sort of pops up here. So, fun little yeah, timing. That's interesting. Yeah, and, and I find that scene in the bedroom with where she's wearing the crown and or the tiara and doing the wave, like, I find that a very... I guess erotic's not quite the right word for it, but there's a really sexy scene. That's a really and sort of intimate scene between the two of them. And I, I think it's their chemistry is so good and sex is handled so well that, you know, they just truly didn't need it, right? I mean, you sort of, you get their... The, the beats of their relationship are so well placed in the movie and he's so wonderfully persistent with her and she holds him at arm's length as long as she possibly can and then sort of gives into it and, and is, is glad, right, to sort of let him in in some way. And we're glad that she's let him in in some way. And they just seem, you know, he seems as tough as she is, but also has as this nurturing side that comes out when he takes care of the kids and when he takes care of her in some ways. And I, without sort of diminishing her power in any way, I just think that that's handled both in a cinematic sense and in sort of a gender politics sense really beautifully here. And I love how Soderbergh never really shows the shark, like I guess in the Jaws sense, you know, like a few movies back, like there's the big talk up to a massacre we never seen. I believe there, there was something in the Limey where the character just walks into a warehouse and we never see the violence, but we just see like the kid running out of the warehouse. So it's kind of interesting. Like it's all ready to be implied after the scene is cut. You know, like you could definitely just there's enough there to fill in the blanks yourself. But I also really love that scene because. I didn't pick up on a lot of this in the movie, but I did in this scene, just the symbolism going around with Tiara, like especially at first with her wearing it sort of being the symbol of like this modern princess in a way, you know, that she's this single mom with three kids out there scraping for money, you know, busting her ass, yet she was the beauty queen, she's the winner, she's, you know, she has the Tiara. Um, I don't know if I was reading too far into it or if I was just digging for stuff, uh, but I thought that was interesting. And then when she sort of hands that over to her prince, per se and he puts it on it's like and he's you know the ones the stay at home mm-hmm. you know quote unquote mm-hmm. father there's definitely gender role reversal going on here uh, and it's not very explicit but I feel like in this scene it's nicely touched upon and what's what's also cool about that not that Julia Roberts is going to go naked at this point in her career but like the movie, like you said earlier, is not shying away from its hard R rating because she's swearing the entire <laughs> yeah. movie. Like in the first scene, like she curses like three or four. Like it just it's nonstop with her, which is great. Like it's it's colorful, but like they're not hiding it because of like 
MPAA rating, they're just hiding because like you're not going to learn anything new, and right. it's just going to be sort of like. And also, the the audience that's going to see this movie doesn't necessarily need to see a sex scene. Maybe they want to see Aaron Eckhart topless, which I think he is. Like he doesn't have a shirt on when he's in bed or whatever. But like you don't need to have them have sex on screen to convey anything because you know what happens. You know you know who this woman is. You know who this guy is. Maybe in that extra hour of footage he cut, there was something in there. Who knows? You don't need to see it. And I, I like that it's reserved and that it's all the it's all about the character as opposed to like ooh a steamy sex scene between two beautiful people. And that gets repeated over and over at various times in this movie when other movies would glory in the you know sneaking into a you know toxic waste site or the uh, intimidated by a guy outside a bar or you know all their other sort of genre scenes that could get the sort of heavy hand here and he keeps it and the script keeps it so about character Susanna Grant's script is so focused on us learning who she is and and how she's changing that makes all those scenes play differently in some way there's an added dimension to them by the fact that it knows what it wants to show you and what you don't need to see what you can infer and I think there's something very like it doesn't condescend to its audience it feels more like something that would be on you know premium cable these days than something that you would find in the movie theater half the time like it's not going to lay it out for you it's going to tell you just what you need and you're going to be able to infer the rest and there's something very satisfying about that to use that word again for the audience i think yeah i think it does something really smart to get on the audience's side immediately with that opening scene where she's in an interview but yet she's kind of talking to the audience describing herself selling herself and it's just like on her looking at us almost breaking the fourth wall in a weird way and then she doesn't get the job uh, mostly because of the way that she's dressed and so i had like immediate empathy for her but then she goes on to get into like a car accident and it's like one thing after the other that just i feel like they really do a good job of getting you on her side but then you kind of realize like she's not necessarily like the greatest like nicest person she's very opinionated she's pushy she's not always right you know she's impetuous all these things that make her great you know what she gets the job done and everything like that but she's by no means perfect either and i think by the end of the movie that balance is there a little bit clearer you know i think everyone is sort of aware that uh, she's shifted enough to the point where i've accepted her flaws as who she is because she's doing the job and she's getting it done because really early on, I wrote down, like, oh, she cannot catch a break. Like, everything is going against her, and, like, it seems like everything's going well. And then, like, and then you're like, oh, but she's also not giving anybody the benefit of the doubt to give her a break either. And I like that there's the two, the two sides of that dynamic that, you, like you said, it sort of balances out as the movie goes on. But right off the bat, like, it's great. And his technique, Soderbergh's technique, is front and center in the in the opening, what, six shots of this movie. It starts on her face in that close-up, Mike, you were describing as she's applying for this job. And we hold on that for a long time. It's only her talking and her talking and her talking. And then you see the doctor. and <laughs> You can tell he's not buying it. And then back to her, it goes back and forth a few times. And then we cut outside to the shot of her smoking a cigarette as the, as the credits start. And then it's all one shot as she puts out the cigarette, goes to her car, has a ticket on her car, breaks a nail opening the door. It keeps swearing as she does this. So that now, now there's the third thing going wrong. Gets in the car, still all one shot, drives off in this in this crappy car into the intersection. And then the car gets hit and spun around. And it's it's all one, that that is all one shot. And, and I think that most audiences aren't going to know that, aren't going to be paying attention to that, aren't going to see that. But there's something psychological about that. Because for one thing, 
that's a special effect. You're not going to have Julie Roberts in that car as that gets smashed and, and spun around, you know? <laughs> but there's something about the, the audience is not given the breath of a cut in between there. And he's showing us that he still has full command of all his all the techniques, even though he's making ostensibly a linear, straightforward, man-against-the-system, woman-against-the-system kind of movie. But he is still going to be playing with these sort of techniques that have subtle psychological effects, even if we don't recognize it as a regular viewing audience. Whether you recognize that or not, like, I jumped. Like, when she got in the car accident, I like, whoa, like, whoa. Like, it's it's such a, like, you're right. Like, you can't breathe. Like, it's one thing after another, thing after thing after thing. She opens the car door, and, like, the car drives down the street. And I was like, is her car door going to get, like, knocked off? Like, is the car going to run into that? And, no, she closed the car door, and then she gets whacked by the other car. I'm just like, whoa, geez, like, just let's calm down for a second, please. And then, of course, she does it to herself, right? Because after she goes to see, well, she goes out to dinner and, you know, or, you know, takes her kids to dinner, but can't afford to buy herself dinner. I mean, things just get worse and worse and worse. And then, and then when she gets on the witness stand as Ed Masary, uh, Albert Finney playing her lawyer, after he's done questioning her and, you know, she's up there in her neck brace or whatever. And then we get another scene at exposition where she's telling us about her kids and her previous marriage and stuff. But we're learning about it because the defense attorney for the guy who hit her is trying to get her to rise to the bait, right? Trying to get her to snap because they know that she's got a temper. And and then, and then she finally does, right? So she, in the end, she, like the last straw is her shooting herself in the foot. And I think that that's, that's like a, I guess it's after that she goes out to dinner with the kids, right? But that's, it's really sort of a great way to let us learn a lot about who she is, not only literally, like how many kids she has and how many ex-husbands she has, but also just as a character to see how she, to show us how she can be so easily goaded, even though everything is sort of hanging on her keeping it together in that trial. Like, there's a lot of those moments. Like, we also get the same thing when she, like, gives the numbers speech yes, to Aaron Eckhart, yes. right? You know, like, this is the number of kids I have, this is how old they are, you know, this is my phone number, but I know that you have zero interest, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's a lot of those, like, it would almost feel excessive if it wasn't so right, well done, right. but you're like, okay, like, we get who she is. Like, we, like, there's, like, three or four different scenes that are, like, perfect examples of this is exactly who this character is. It would be like, all right, like, we get it, but, like, they're all, like, well-written and well-shot, and she nails, nails it. it every yeah, time. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? But it's almost like, okay, like, let's, like, we, we know that she's a mess and she has no money, but, like, every time you're like, all right, like, here's another just terrific monologue where she's going to get really angry about something. <laughs> like, all right, I'm ready for it. I think it really helps once she, like, starts to really sink her teeth into, or once the movie really starts to sink into the main issue about the poisoned water, you know, because then she has a right to be angry every time all day long because she's <laughs> fighting for these sick people who we're taking advantage of that don't have the strength or ability to do it themselves. So it's kind of interesting how she can then, you know, like, use that side of her and bring out and, like, whip out the angry side and, and start, like, throwing speeches around the place, like, laced with the F word. You know, she's almost like a weapon in that way and someone calls her a secret weapon, but, like, you aim her at someone and she'll go off and put them in their place uh yeah she does it a couple times and you're right it would feel a little like too much unless like i didn't happen to feel like she had the right for most of the movie to be that mad until people started listening and eventually it's cool because she starts winning people over like she wins over albert finney she wins over the people at the other firm she she seems to win everybody over basically all the doubters actually but it didn't escape me the amount of like sort of times the movie just stopped and Albert Finney would be like, here we go again. And she would <laughs> sort of stand up and just go off. 
it's really like a combined team effort why that works so well. But I think a lot of it, most of it, maybe all of it, or almost all of it, comes down to Julia Roberts. And did you guys hear who the real Erin Brockovich wanted to play her and then who the real Ed Masry thought should play her? No, who? So Erin Brockovich initially hoped Goldie Hawn would play her in the film. But Ed Masry thought that Roseanne Barr would be more suitable. (laughs) Can you imagine this movie with Roseanne? Wow. I mean, I guess. I don't know. I don't know if this was after she was cast or if he was just if this was before. I don't know what, what what point this was. Ed Masry, who was the lawyer that she, the guy nominated for best supporting actor, you know, the, but the real lawyer, he once said that Julia Roberts would be the least suitable actress for the part, claiming, "quote She has no tits and no foul mouth, so it wouldn't work." <laughs> but then, like. It worked perfectly. Like, I, you know, yeah. that's, that, I guess that's why you're a lawyer and not in Hollywood. <laughs> well, I think this also sort of, she's playing against her type in this a lot, right? I mean, granted, she came on the scene with Pretty Woman where she played, you know, the hooker with a heart of gold and all that, that whole, the whole nine yards there. But since then, I feel like she had sort of developed more of a sweetheart side, you know, of her public I don't know. I didn't follow the tabloids. I'm not really into People Magazine or anything like that. But to my understanding, part of the sort of draw was the shock of hearing Julia Roberts like say the F word so much or like act out in such a way and be so strong and and forward. And all this was sort of very against and dressing so sort of skimpy and scandalous and, you know, not having a great sense of fashion and appropriate attire and all that. I feel like at this time, this was a great choice. What's also weird is that I'd only seen her in like six movies before this. And I think three of them, the Oceans movies. She might be the biggest actress in the world that I'm like most familiar with that I've like never seen movies. You know what I mean? Traditionally, like exactly like what you're saying, she does not make movies that I really generally want to see. She also doesn't make movies that like with a character that's like this, that it's all sort of feels like movies that my parents would watch because my mom wants to see. Again, like this is going to over to Keanu Club, like something more like something's gotta give. That sort of, you know demographic. Yeah. It's it's great for a specific crowd, but not for me. I think you may be making some assumptions. You know, there was a... Oh, at 100%. (laughs) You know, I knew her pretty well. I mean, I was... Not her. I knew her work. (laughs) I knew her work pretty well. Are you guys friends? You know, I remember Flatliners. I remember Sleeping with the Enemy. I remember Hook. I remember The Player. I was a big Robert Altman fan. The Pelican Brief, which was directed by the guy who made All the President's Men from a John Grisham novel. You know, but you're right. She was playing to a certain kind of... You know, she was solidifying her persona in a way. And then came along, there was a stretch in the mid-90s. I don't remember exactly when. When she did like this Neil Jordan movie, Michael Collins, and she did a this like British movies, like where she would play completely against type, and she never really worked. She sort of faded into the wallpaper in those movies for me. Mary, uh, Mary Riley, right? That was another one. But anyway, then came My Best Friend's Wedding. Now, if you have not seen My Best Friend's Wedding, you really, really should see it. It is kind of the anti-romantic comedy, and she is. Like, cruel. She's pretty cruel to Cameron Diaz in that movie. And I think that, in in my mind, that's where her... I'm guessing that Soderbergh saw that, and that that's probably the thing that, that led him to feel like she could play this character. Because she's able to sort of... She comes alive in that movie when she's conniving and brash. And I think that that's something that, that doesn't... That sort of gets lost in the... As much as I like Notting Hill, and I do, it gets lost in movies like that that she was doing at the time. But for the uninitiated, I would suggest that you take a piece 
peek at uh, My Best Friend's Wedding. You know, take its 90s-ness for what it is, but I think she's quite good in it, and I think you can draw a line from that movie to this movie. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to criticize her. I was just. I was just saying that I'm mostly unfamiliar. Like looking at her list of movies, I guess it's all the, the sort of the same thing. Like when you, whenever you watch everything that an actor does, like we did for Cage and Keanu, there's all these movies that like you've never heard of until you really like do this deep dive, and you have to hope that there are more hits than misses. And like when you were going through that list of things that she was great in, like that early stuff, like I haven't seen any of that. So I don't want to downplay Julia Roberts. Right. I guess to just say that she she had been trying to find a way to stretch her career and to show different sides, and some some of those did not work. And but I think there is there is precedent for this. If you like this Julia Roberts, and maybe are are less inclined to see the movies where she's more America's sweetheart, then My Best Friend's Wedding is one I'd point you to. That's all. Did you guys know that in that diner scene where she goes to the dinner with her kids, the waitress is the real Aaron yes. Rockovich? Oh, cool. And the guy at the table behind her is the real oh, Ed Nasri. I read that and I went back to see it again. He's just like flipping through a menu. Like he just like, just like he doesn't look at the camera. Like there's nothing. He's, he's just sitting there, but he looks similar. Like they both look like the people that they're playing, which is kind of rare. I would say generally like you're capturing the vibe, but like they both kind of look similar, which is cool. Albert Finney's fantastic in this movie, I think. And it was it was kind of a return for him, right? I mean, he had been away from certainly American movies and I think movies in general for a while. But I think there's a warmth to him. There's a befuddled quality to him. And yet he's clearly sharp as attack. And as much as she and Aaron Eckhart are sort of the romance of the movie, the buddy comedy of Julia Roberts and Albert Finney, I think works beautifully. I think their chemistry is, is maybe the best in the movie. Their scenes, sort of their chemistry with one another. And he originally turned the movie down. That Danny DeVito, who's a producer on this, so Danny DeVito, I feel like, is, he's been on a couple different movies. I don't know what his relationship is with Soderbergh or if he came with the Clooney train or whatever, but I feel like he's been on a couple different movies, and he had to go talk to Albert Finney and be like, no, you got to do this. And like, they like reworked the shooting schedule so that he would be in L.A. for less days. Like, they sort of compacted his stuff so he'd be out there less. But he turned this down, and then he wound up getting an Oscar nomination for it. So good job, Danny DeVito. Nice. I know DeVito and his Jersey films did a bunch of the other Elmore Leonard-type movies, so maybe that's where he sort of jumped on board and started producing alongside or anything. But correct me if I'm wrong, but did Albert Finney not have a stroke at one point in his career and then sort of take some time off? And then I'm pretty sure like he came back and did this and Big Fish and a couple movies in a row, and I could be mistaken about that. At the time, I thought that was sort of a part of it. Maybe he, did, he didn't want to do the work because he might not have been feeling up to it. I have a vague, vague memory of that, but I, I don't remember any specifics. But, you know, I've seen a lot of the other stuff he did a- after this, you know, the Bourne movie and whatever, where he's, they're just sort of plugging him in, you know, because it's Albert Finney and he gets sort of growled. And he's always great, but I think he's just... This, this uh, again, marries the director, the part, and the actor and you know, all together in such a beautiful way. I, I'm sure another actor could do a great job, but it's hard for me to imagine exactly who that would be. Yeah, and I didn't know him before really seeing this and Big Fish, like I mentioned, but going back, I started seeing him in movies in the past and stuff, and none more so than a movie I grew up with by the little name of Annie, where he yes, played yes. Daddy Warbucks. Yeah. And when I found that out, like, a connection in my brain, like, ignited that just put me right on the floor. Like, I just couldn't get up from that, putting that together. But that isn't insane. I mean, the guy can do anything, basically. This is a very different role. Uh, but he's very good here. Yeah, you know, he like, he's almost like a fatherish figure at times. But then at other times, he's almost like a brother to her. Like, the way that they bicker and fight and squabble and stuff. But he's also very much got, like, that guidance and guides her and sort of, even if she doesn't know. And then till that, the end of the movie with, like, the most, like, perfect 
16 when he hands her the check and he just knows <laughs> yeah. that the way he says certain things is going to set her off in a certain direction and he just knows how to like trigger her like it, it was just great that uh, you really got the relationship that they forged by the end of this I almost got the sense that the two actors became good friends too making this movie what I like about that scene is like it's not like he feels like an old man throughout this movie it's not, at sometimes might he kind of feels like an old man but at the end there like he gives the check and, like he literally dances out of her office like it's just like this perfect little yeah. like flourish to end his character arc you know I guess the weight of the trial is off he's sort of you know the weight of working with Aaron Brockovich is always going to be with him but like he maybe knows how to handle her or knows how to push her buttons in a way that like you know she'll sort of shut up for a minute uh, but I just like that he like drops the check off and just like walks out and, like does like this little twirl <laughs> to get out there like just such a great little moment to end the part and it's such a nice mirror to the opening scene. If the opening scene of the movie is Aaron in someone else's office trying desperately to get a job because she can't feed you know herself and her kids and get out of debt and whatever, and then in the end, at the end, she has not really changed very much as a character, and yet she's in her own office and she's getting this... She's just as ornery and irascible as she was at the beginning, and she's giving him a hard time about when he tells her that the, the amount of her bonus is not is not quite what they discussed, and then it ends up being, was it $3 million or something, or $2 million? It's clearly more than they, than they had talked about by quite a bit. And then she's speechless. She's finally rendered speechless in that moment, and there's such a nice sort of symmetry in that. I love it. I have little weirdo trivia about this movie that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Soderbergh. Is there anything else that we want to cover before we sort of divert off on a little bit of a tangent? No, that's tangent. George, her next door neighbor, is still, like, they, they dated and they broke up, but he became, like, her full-time live-in nanny in real yeah. life. That the, the law firm paid for him to move in, basically, and take care of the kids so that she can keep doing her things. She, As of 2003, she was still at that law firm and was uh, her job title was Director of Research. So she never got a law degree? I mean, she doesn't really need to. Yeah, because, like, she's going to do the work. She just can't represent people in court. She does the hard work, and then, like, they fight the cases or whatever. She sold the rights to her story for about $100,000, which I guess, you know, once you get a $2 million bonus, like, what's another, you know, you don't need a lot of money, right? I suppose you're right. That, that's a lot of money for life rights. That's not. That's good. That's that's a good haul. Yeah, but also it made you know two hundred million dollars, two hundred fifty million dollars. So like wise investment. She says this movie's about ninety eight percent accurate. So she's pretty much happy. There's a one. There was one point where like the real Erin Brockovich actually got sick from the chemicals in the ground. And she was in the hospital for a while, and Soderbergh had that, like, they shot a scene or two in the movie in, like, that extra hour, but he cut it out because he didn't want audiences to think that this was going to be a movie where, like, the main character gets terminally Uh ill, which I think is a smart decision. So, like, it doesn't have to be necessarily true to life, but you're capturing the spirit, obviously, and you're not diverting off this weird tangent that, you know, ultimately resolves itself, but I get that. I, I like that. That could feel too too Hollywood too, right? I mean, that could feel like an, an, an invention yes. and not, not something that came from... And then it's been all the time saying, no, 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 but it really happened and it might might throw people out of the movie. When Julia Roberts won Best Actress, she forgot to thank the real Erin Brockovich in her speech, and she said afterwards she was quoted as saying, it doesn't bring out the Albert Einstein moment you hoped it would. Was this based on a book or of about Erin Brockovich or was this no, just, no, just, it's, her it's just her life? life? Just her life. Okay. So like, interviews with her i mean she probably like i'm sure that she got a lot of notoriety and then she probably gave a lot of interviews and probably talked to the screenwriter i I don't know what the i don't know what the process was 
it was one of the women uh, was executives at Jersey Films. I don't remember which one. Her hairdresser also did Aaron Brockovich's hair. Oh, right, 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 right. So she was telling this this exec about this producer about the, this you know woman that she knew and what she this amazing thing that she did, and that's what got them connected. And then it went from there. You never know. Studio executives were worried that audiences would not forgive Aaron Brockovich's language, but people loved it anyway. Finally, there was one test screening audience member that did take issue or had one issue with the film. And the quote is, the first 99 times I saw her breasts were enough. I mean, she's always like, it's because that's that's one of the things apparently that, that the real Erin Brockovich says is not necessarily fully accurate. That like she doesn't necessarily use her push-up bra or her cleavage or whatever to woo that records hall guy to like get into the back room uh she said like it might have helped but like that she didn't do it intentionally (laughs) but like this whole movie like it's just it's her in like you know not slutty just revealing sort of like it's it's uh it's professionally casual i guess right like it's um there's just a lot of cleavage it's it's revealing i would say at times it's borderline inappropriate well, she gets she gets yelled at, and she's like, "Well, I think I look nice," and like that's the end of it. Like, the issue is dropped from then on out. Like, I mean, she dresses a little bit nicer in certain moments, but like for the most part, she's kind of wearing like leopard print, or you know, you see. I a think bra. I think it's some combination of her. She, she's loud. It's loud, right? It's it's, and then, and then there is <laughs> it's her personality is, on the outside. Exactly, yeah. exactly. This is it's it's her shining through, and when she does get. Um, more dressed up, right? Like it's she, the the heels are just longer, and the shirt, the skirts are still really short, and you, and she's still wearing the push-up bra. Like it, she, which is one of the things that I think ultimately people admire. I certainly admire from this movie is that this is a character who will not be pushed around, <laughs> who will not change, who gets pushed up against the wall and just keeps pushing back, and then eventually is able to sort of you know take on you know against all odds. And I think that that's reflected really really beautifully in the clothes. Now, if she were working at my law firm, would I suggest that she? <laughs> Would she dress differently? Yeah, I would because I think that there are, and this, the movie gets to this, uh, right or wrong, assumptions are made, um, you know, in that kind of professional setting based on how the how the the firm and the people in it look. However, there's a difference between that and slut shaming, which I think also happens to her probably in real life and and in this movie. And I think I, th- I just think it's such a great thing that she's unapologetically who she is, and people have to learn to deal with it. And eventually, they they do because she is so good at what she does. Yeah, I think, you know, she'd have no trouble fitting in here in Jersey. By all means, no one would give her a second look. But I think in her part of the country where it's way more conservative and, like, she's probably seen as much more as, like, a free spirit or something like that, that, yeah, people are going to turn their heads and sort of look at her and prejudge her. And that is definitely, like, a whole part of it is, like, she's trying to get people's attention, right? And it's, like, break them out of their comfort zone about what they know. And everyone's been so complicit with everything from fashion etiquette to big corporations like quite literally right like people are just they know things they're not saying until someone stronger says up and says like look and pay attention so it's kind of interesting too as how maybe it's an and it's an unintentional side effect but it's like a nice flourish that her being a sort of very loud looking character is drawing attention to this very important issue that people aren't talking about i also wonder if the fact that, like, th- I'm, gonna, I'm gonna throw around a lot of generalizations here just to sort of make a very basic point, but like, I wonder if her sort of dressing white trashy appeals more, even if it's a conservative town, appeals more to these like lower demographic people in terms of, at least in terms of income, 
especially in comparison to like the other lawyer who comes in in her like you know lady suit like the three like all the way buttoned up you know like the complete opposite they might not approve of her like they might not want like their daughter like walking out like that but i feel like they could relate to that more than they could relate to some like out of town you know high rolling businesswoman coming in and like not being one of them you know yeah absolutely yeah, he ha- and it reinforces this thing that she even says. Where she says, a lawyer. She, she's asked, are you a lawyer? She says, oh, hell no. I hate those guys. Like, it helps distinguish her from the people that these people would be distrustful of, right? From, from the lawyers these people would be distrustful of. And just reinforces that she's – this is just who she is. She just lets it all hang out. And I think that that's sort of met- metaphorically and literally. And I think that, that you're totally right that that would sort of ingratiate her to these to these people, make her seem relatable, right? Like she's – She's just she's just who she is. She's not going to button up and, and pretend to be somebody else. And I think that, that has to open open doors for her, you know. And it also gets her to get, you know, literally open doors to get like 634 out of 634 signatures. Like people relate to her and like her and trust her and like are willing to step up and go for her. So the last little bit of trivia I have is maybe the weirdest thing that I've seen on IMDb. <laughs> Julia Roberts is one of two best actress winners to portray a right-handed character, although the actress is naturally left-handed. Two what? years later, left-hand Nicole Kidman won her Oscar for playing right-handed Virginia Woolf in The Hours. I was like, how is that a <laughs> wow. connection that people make? Like, that's who picked that that's up? some next-level... I don't know. Wait, so all the other characters that Julie Roberts ever played is left-handed? Well, they're saying they're saying one of best actress. Interesting. So out of the oh, eighty so of no, those or whatever there have oh, been. I, I hear. Okay, never mind. It's 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 <laughs> stupidly specific. Like it's you're not wrong for like questioning it because like it's the weirdest trivia that I've ever seen. I just wanted to say it because I was like, this is yeah, that crazy. Is weird. That is weird. Two other things that were that I read in the interviews in that book, the, the, the really good book of interviews that I've been reading. There's not a lot on Aaron Brockovich, yeah. which is sort of weird, but they do mention Son of Schizopolis, which I want to see. Like <laughs> I guess that just never yeah. happened because he had talked about making a sequel to it, but I just like that now it has a title. Like, you know, I'm putting notes together on Son of Schizopolis. And the other thing was that at the point of one of these interviews, Bill Murray was attached to Ocean's Eleven. What? Oh, yeah. It has to be in the Carl Reiner role, yeah? Or maybe the um, Elliot Gould? Does play Elliot Gould's part? Yeah. I don't know. That's, that'd be I, good. I, yeah. That'd be yeah, good. That, yeah. So, a future that never was. <laughs> two, two futures that never um, were. Son of Schizopolis yeah. and uh, Bill Murray and Ocean's. Oh, so sad. So, so sad. Anything else? Any last thoughts about Aaron Brockovich? I would just be curious to see where you guys would place this. Oh, I did number two. Oh, interesting. Okay. I have Out of Sight first, and then this, and then Sex Lies. This and Sex Lies are real, real close back and forth. Yeah, I don't know. My tastes are a little different. I'd say mine, this is maybe like fourth or so. I got like Out of Sight, Sex Lies, The Limey, then maybe this, I'd say, or Schizopolis than this. It's up there, though. Top five. Top five of not out of nine so far. <laughs> yeah, I, I would put this at three. I think I'd say I'd go out of sight, the limey, and then Aaron Brockovich. But you're right; it could jump around, and I could easily put Skitsopolis or Sex Lies ahead. Or yeah, but I right now, right now, I'm gonna I'm gonna have it at three. I think it's it's studio movies don't get much better than this. I think unless it's in out of sight. Well, yeah, true, right? <laughs> but they, they don't much get much better than Soderbergh in the '90s and 2000s. And I think this is a prime example. Cool. Yeah. So next week is traffic. So you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter to keep up with all of our future releases. You can also see everything that we've done so far, see all the other shows on the network. We are now 
six months ago. We are now on Google Play and Stitcher, so you can listen to this in all three places. It's really weird to be recording these ahead of time and then, like, sort of react to the things that we're doing live in person that have been the standard for six months. But, you know, <laughs> whatever. You know where to find this stuff. Just go go listen to it. Go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, at cageclubpod on Twitter. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Addington. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.